Wednesday, August 25th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 355. I'm becoming afraid of heights, especially in the last two days. My name is Caleb Haig. As usual, I have no special intro to say. My name's Rob Fanhoff. You can tell that Rob really cares a lot about this show and the quality of it by how much he prepares. Um, What's up, buddy? Ouch. <laughs> How you doing? I'm here. I show up. I get my 10 bucks at the end. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I don't know what that means. Okay, 5 bucks. Um, it's been It's a, a reference to when Getty Lee was the guest on the Bob and Doug McKenzie show. You're just saying words at this point. I have no clue what the they're talking 80s, about. They got Getty Lee of Rush to come on. You don't know who Bob and Doug McKenzie are. It doesn't matter. No. I he don't. said, hey, 10 bucks is 10 bucks. Because they were never mind. Yeah, for the uh for those of us who were born in the early 80s, <laughs> that rushed right over my head. <laughs> oh, but it's Rick Moranis and uh Dave. Well, I don't remember his other name. Anyway, comedians, Canadian comedians. Oh, are you talking about? Uh, yeah, I, I now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's like SCTV. It's old. It was a Canadian comedy show. Did you ever the watch time. the Red Green Show? Yeah, dude, keep your stick on the ice. I uh, the one. Okay, we got to go down this rabbit hole for a few <laughs> seconds. The one I love the most is when he took a a a city bus and he cut the top off of it. And then he cut the steering wheel off and he extended the steering wheel like bar all the way back to the back seat. And then he put the roof back on, but cut all the windows off. So it looked like the front and he duct taped it all on so that he could drive from the back seat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Now we're off in the weeds. Okay. Um, yeah. Strange Silly. brew. Silly. Yeah. Paul, that's what I was thinking of. Strange brew. I've, I've never seen it, but I've heard. No, it was it. before that, but yeah, they eventually made that movie to try to like boost it. But anyway. Okay. Um, should we just, uh, jump in? Well, let's do this first. Uh, two, five, three, four, six, five, thirty, two, oh, five. Actually, there is someone who called in John called in this past week and he said that the, that as he was dialing, he sang the song. And so it's working. Let's let's listen to the song. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. There you go. Uh, yeah, so give us a call. And uh, we got a great, we got one of the best voice messages we've gotten, I think, ever this past week. Anyway, we'll hear it in oh. a little bit. I know. High praise. Um, okay. Or you can shoot us an email, chegatorresource.com, C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. Uh, don't forget to go to Torah Resource. There's all sorts of, uh, wonderful resources there, both free and paid. You can also get a library membership where you get all of our digital products for, uh, a one time, one year annual fee of a hundred bucks. Sounds like a lot, but it's less than $10 a month. Find all of our archives at MessiahMatters.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this YouTube channel. I know that there's a lot of people out there right now. Every time you watch a YouTube video, they tell you subscribe. And don't forget to press the bell for notifications. Okay, but the question is, do they give content like we do? And the answer is no. And that's why you should uh, hit that subscribe button. If you've already hit the subscribe button, then hit the like button. 
we like that as well. Uh, okay, let's jump into it. We've given high praise to this uh, this message recording. This that was not the right thing that I was trying to say to this voicemail. That's what I was looking for. Um, so we've given high praise. This is from a gentleman named John. He identifies as a Baptist. And uh, I have taken out the front part. By the way, thank you for all of the, uh, yeah, really good message all around. But we're going to listen to the theological question that he's going to put in here. Here we go. All right, so my question is in regards to circumcision in the modern times. I'm sure you've touched on this before. Let's hold right there. We have actually talked about this many times. In fact, I think we've talked about this exact issue several times. However, that's okay. You know, as I uh, see our YouTube channel starting to grow a little bit, I know that there are new people, and I know that this is actually one of those hot-button issues. And so um, it's one of those things that I think needs to be talked about regularly. And the reason why is because I think that people don't understand it. And in general, I think that the mainstream Christian church, and actually I shouldn't even say that, I think that Judaism and Christianity as a whole have misunderstood the basic meaning of circumcision. Now, that's not across the board. There are great scholars that I've read who have just hit the nail right on the head. Anyway, this is a topic that we need to keep going over. So let's listen to what John has to say. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I don't quite understand why circumcision is considered necessary uh, in today's society. I know it was a way of marking at least the way I understand it was a way of marking them, setting them apart uh, from the uh, Gentiles, or specifically the pagans uh, in the, uh, the you know old days. Let's stop. there. Um, okay, John, first of all, before you're even done with your message, I want to say thank you very much for your message. Like I said, I think it's probably one of the better voice messages we've gotten as a whole. We're not going to play the whole thing for everybody, but uh, it, it definitely was a, a, a bright part of our day as we listened to it. With that said, I think that there are a couple of um, maybe missteps that have been made here. First of all, I'm going to let um, Rob talk more to the word that was used, necessary. I don't think that this is the correct word that should be used. The idea of it is a necessary. What, is, what do we mean by necessary? Do we mean part of the covenant? Well, it was part of the Abrahamic covenant. It's part of the Mosaic Covenant. It transcends the covenants in terms of it's a thread that goes through the covenants, I believe. So there's that. But what do we mean by necessary? Is it necessary to uh, ha for us to have salvation? Uh, absolutely not. Um, and I think that John, as a good Baptist, would probably agree with that. There, there, there's no... There's no, no work is going to save you, not even circumcision. Okay, but the thing, and I'll let you talk to that in just a few seconds. The thing I want to talk about, uh, the thing I want to address here, though, let's listen to this one more time so I can refresh my memory. Uh, from the uh, Gentiles, or specifically the pagans. Yeah, to separate us, let's get his exact word. Well, he said the way them. I understand it was a way of marking them. Times. Yeah, yeah, hang on. So okay. the way I understand it is. I understand it was a way of marking them, setting them apart uh, from the uh, Gentiles. Okay, setting, uh, so... The way that he understands it is that it was a way of separating them and setting them apart from the pagan nations. I think that this is also a little bit of a misstep, and the reason why is because circumcision was not exclusive to Israel. Now, it, maybe the way that they did it was exclusive to Israel. The Egyptians circumcised. They circumcised in a different way, but they circumcised as well. And so the question is, um, was it to set them apart? I don't believe it was necessarily to set them apart. 
as weird as that might sound. Let's talk about. So, do you want to? Do you want to talk about? You want me to talk about that first? Or do you want to talk about the this term necessary? Well, just in terms of how we frame questions and how we build thought, it, I'm looking at words like "it was for them" and in olden times, right, or in olden days. So, so the the presumption seems to be that there's a difference. Like I'm not part of the same people. And so I would just say that's a good place to, that we could talk about. Am yeah. I part of the same people or is it they and we are a new people? So that's one area to discuss. The other is, and you already touched on it. Um, I, I think I, I have seen in many study Bibles, for example, N.T. Wright, or something, you know, oh, this was a sign to keep Israel separated from the Gentiles. Uh, but now that has, that sign is gone now because Jew and Gentile become one in Christ. So I could understand where, is it John, did yep. you say? Yep. Where John has, and others, you know, a lot of us who have study Bibles will have encountered scholars who frame it this way, this very way. That was for them to keep them from Gentiles, but in Christ, that is done away. And so uh, I think Caleb and I and, and everybody at Tor Resource would uh, challenge that framing of the situation and, and bring it back to covenant, as Caleb pointed out. Um, and, and also, back to something, Caleb, that you said at the, uh, at the beginning was circumcision being misunderstood. Yeah. And we know that it, even from the apostolic writings, but we can look outside uh, writings, you know, from Qumran and uh, first century Jewish writings, that circumcision was a contested issue within Israel. So it, right. it's not even a Jew-Gentile issue. Um, it's a Jewish issue, and that different um, Jewish teachers explained it in completely different ways. In other words, it was a symbol that different groups gave spin this or that direction. And we know that that even Paul in Philippians, I found it Philippians 3, he says, beware of the circumcision. We are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit, uh, in the spirit of God and glory and glory in, in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Right. So again, Paul's using it rhetorically because it was in the air as a rhetorical thing to be quote, part of the circumcision became a kind of code word for uh, falling in line to the, to the uh, bullies, to like religious bullies, like Saul of Tarsus was before his conversion. And they, so long story short, and then I'll pass it back, Caleb, is that it, even by the first century, circumcision was a misunderstood concept in the Jewish world right. that Yeshua came to. It, the Jews were already misunderstanding it and arguing about it. Uh, and that's the context we need to read the gospels and paul uh to try to uh, understand not this what the way that nt wright would frame it which is an old symbol that jews held to define themselves and then it was done away that it's not helpful the, the nt wright approach here i'm a big fan of nt wright but his approach here and his understanding of works of the law in my opinion does is not helpful uh to to getting to the first century situation. I'm a mid 
like I'm not a big fan. I'm not a I'm not a not fan. You've had the, you've interviewed him a couple times, haven't you? Yeah, but but the, yeah, the, I never have. I, cool. the, the the point here is I so let's start asking some questions. And I'm I think a big fan. Yeah, I, eh, some of his stuff is no, good. I mean, I, I'm I a big fan. I, I, I have a couple of his books. I, have, I just like some of his stuff. Yeah. So I anyway, hear you. Um, okay. Uh, I think I think it's important to ask what. Uh, let's just ask the obvious question that I think a lot of people don't ask. Which is why, what, why, right? I mean, that's that's the question. Why, what, why? Like, think about this. Yeah. Now, this I've written on this, by the way. You can find my article on this. I don't know if it's on TorahResource.com. It probably is. But if it's not, then it's uh, definitely in um, Celebrate the Feast, which is a book of collected articles from uh, writers at Torah Resource. I wrote on circumcision uh, in that book. And basically, the way that I tried to go about that article was I took my father's, I don't know, 22 or 24 page article that he wrote for a scholarly uh, lecture. And I tried to take out some of the great points and bring them down to a understandable level for everyone. The question that needs to be asked is what? (laughs) And what I mean by that is think about Abraham. Okay. Abraham has been promised uh, this, this, this descendant, and he's been promised that the covenant is going to go through this descendant. Okay. And then, uh, he, he tries to do it himself, right? He does it through the flesh instead of through faith in, in Christ, faith in God. He says, I'm going to do it myself. And he takes Hagar, by the way, this is a total side note. I think it's interesting that he, that God says, take your, after Isaac is born, right? He says, take your son, your only son. And I've heard the midrash on this from the rabbis before. I I totally reject it. I think it's nonsense, honestly, because I think what that what is actually going on is that God does not see Ishmael as legitimate. The reason that Isaac is his only son is because he's the only legitimate son, which kind of is a testament against uh, against uh, polygamy and or. Um, obviously, uh, taking uh, taking concubines. Well, anyway. he does say, "I will bless." I, when Abraham says, "If only Ishmael would live in your sight," and he says, "No, it's going to be Isaac." Right. But he does. But God does say, "Because he's of your seed, I will bless him." Sure, but I completely agree, and I'm not saying that. And this also shows that the sins of the father does not um, does not pass to the son. The point is, is that is that Ishmael. Now that he's here, God will bless him. But he's still only, but Isaac's only seen as the illegitimate son because he's the right, only he's one. He's not the son of promise, right? right. He's not the. So, so uh, let's go back. He's to, not what God had in mind back to God's promise before Hagar and, and Ishmael. So um, let's go back to actually what, what Rob brought up. He says, oh, that, that uh, Ishmael may stand before you. In other words, uh, Abraham says, I want the covenant to go through Ishmael, right? And God says, no. I'm not, no, it's not going to be like that. In fact, and remember that there's already been this promise that he's going to have a child in his old age. And so he says, no, it's going to be through uh, this descendant that I give you. And remember, and remember that Sarah and Abraham are well, you know, he's a hundred years old. This is not supposed to work. She's beyond, she's, the text says that she's, past the the uh, the way of women, or she's beyond the way of women. In other words, she can't have children. Okay. And then God says, it, then everything breaks, everything stops. Okay. And God says, okay, I want you to take yourself and your 13-year-old son, Ishmael, and I want you to go, and I want you to cut off 
a piece of your reproductive organ. What? So at this point, we need to stop and we need to say, is this arbitrary? Is the cutting away of the male organ of, of procreation, is that is that arbitrary? Does God just, is he just sadistic and just wants Abraham to go through a whole lot of pain in a very specific region of his body that is very sensitive and every guy is sitting there going, oh, no, don't, don't do, no, what are we doing here? No, come on. And what does is, what is Abraham say? He says, done. Yep, let's do it. He circumcises himself and he circumcises Isaac. Now, my belief in this Ishmael. is... Ishmael. Oh, I'm sorry, Ishmael. My belief in this is that it's not arbitrary. My belief in this is that God is very specific about this as a sign. It is a sign. What is it a sign of? And that's what the question, what comes in? What is a sign of? And why does God have him do it? And it is my belief that the reason that he does it is because I, I, uh, Isaac is a foreshadow of the Messiah. And we see this also in the, in, uh, when he takes him up to the mountain and he's going to, you know, he's going to, uh, sacrifice his son. Right. And then God says, no, I have made, you know, I have made a substitute. I've made a, a, a way for him. Okay. So what's it a sign of? I think it's a sign of the virgin birth. In other words, the the male organ of procreation is taken out of the equation. It's cut away, both in in uh, in Abraham and Isaac's case and Sarah's case, because they try to do it on their own. But no, the, you're not going to do it on your own through the flesh. Rather, that piece is cut away, and it's a miracle of God. It is a miracle of God that this child is born, both in Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah's uh, whole you know scenario. It's a foreshadow of the Messiah. And why is the male organ of procrea- procreation taken away with the Messiah? Because the Messiah is going to come through a virgin. The male organ of procreation is completely taken away in that instance. And so when we cut away the flesh of the, of the child at eight days old, it is a sign that the parents believe in the coming Messiah, that the seed will deal with sin. And now it's still a sign. It's a sign that the Messiah came through the virgin and has dealt with sin. We wear men wear the mark of of the Messiah of the virgin birth in our flesh. And this to me is not only powerful, which it is, but it's extremely significant for believers. And so the idea that the Christian church and we could get around, I mean we could even talk for quite some time about why it is that the Christian church moved towards the idea that circumcision is no longer should no longer be practiced. I don't think it was theological in nature in the beginning. I don't think that they were sitting there going, let's see here. Oh, Paul says that we shouldn't circumcise anymore. They were close enough to that time that I think that they knew exactly what was going on. But I think that the Fiscus Judaicus, the falling of the temple, the persecution of the Jews, all of these things, and a want to separate from Judaism who had rejected Christ, I think all of these things play into the idea of, oh, look, Paul right here says that circumcision is nothing. So let's just get, let's, you know, if I'm going to die because I'm going to be circumcised and I can find a place in the Bible where Paul says, you don't need to be circumcised. Great. Right. So, I mean, all of these things play a role, I think, into the coming into the modern understanding of circumcision and why the church no longer circumcises. But ultimately, when we talk about the reasons why we circumcise, it is a sign of the virgin birth. It is a sign of the Messiah. It is a sign that he came through 
unnatural means through the uh, the supernatural working of his father, who is the father, God, yod heh Okay, should we go back to the... Uh, should we go back to the message by John? I think we should. Love is sure. bigger. I will. Uh, I will note your super chat in a few moments. Let's go back to John. The pagans uh, in the, uh, the you know old days of Abraham and and such, but uh, in a modern society, uh, it's very commonly looked on as a barbaric, outdated uh, practice. Hang on, just a sec. Okay. Once again, I agree. It is there's a lot of push against circumcision, but I don't think that this is new. I think that the act of circumcision is barbaric, and I think that any parent who would do it outside of a direct word from God, i.e., maybe the scriptures, uh, no parent would do that naturally. I don't think no parent would look at them, you know, and say, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this to my child." Now, obviously, we have other uh, incentives these days, we've been told that it's healthy, It you know, those kind of things. It's cleaner, all those kind of things. But ultimately, if I did not, now keep in mind, I've been present for many circumcisions. I've seen a lot of circumcisions in my life. If, if I didn't think that God had told us directly, you should circumcise your sons, I wouldn't have done it. I just wouldn't have because I, I do think it's barbaric. And I think it. I think it's been seen as barbaric for quite some time. Look at what happens to, J, to with Jacob and his and his sons. They come and Dina is raped, and then they say, "What do they say? Oh, you got to get circumcised." That doesn't seem like a very you know. They're not like, "Oh, okay, yeah, no problem. Everybody's doing that these days." You know what I mean? Like even mm-hmm. <laughs> even back in that time, it didn't seem like it was a popular. You know, it, it, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. And uh, specifically. Uh, my wife and I decided to not circumcise our two sons. But I know I've heard y'all touch on the fact that it is still considered necessary. So I'd like for you to explain that a little bit in depth and help me understand uh, why it is necessary and uh, help me to understand the error that uh, I made in judgment of not circumcising my sons. Yeah, I mean, once again, John puts puts it all out there. You know, very well, every upfront. every commandment is necessary, right? Yeah. So, but Caleb made this point at the beginning about works. If if I'm if I understand necessary from the idea as like hmm, like an exchange relationship, like Caleb has something that I want and I don't have it, so I have to find out what Caleb wants in order so that I can get that thing. Well, Caleb says I got to give him 20 bucks. So then it's necessary that I have give Caleb 20 bucks. So then he'll give me that, that hammer that I'm, that I want so bad that I've seen him use a build in his, uh, his office. No, whatever it is. So then, so that's thinking of necessary in terms of some sort of exchange. If we're using the word that way, then, then, then no, right. We, we don't, then we don't want to think of, cause that's, we're not in an exchange. Our, our covenant identity in Messiah is not one where God has something and then we have to do some sort of work or some sort of thing. And then we give that to God and then in exchange, he'll give us blessing. That's, 
that that's a common way to think of it. But in 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 Paul's day, there were even you know to join the Essenes, for example, you had to show all these different kinds of things. You had to uh, bring all your worldly goods and deposit it in this side account. You know, they took all your stuff. You had to pass. They they would give you exams, and then after a year of service, you know, digging mud out of a you know, out of a cistern or whatever, they would say, okay, this guy's in. So then they give you access to like the liquids. And then after two years, I think, you know, you could have the full meal with the rest of the yachad. Okay. So that's, that was a, a mentality in the first century in, in Jewish communities that were really, you know, really intense about, about how they viewed the commandments. Same thing with hand-washing. Why did they talk to Yeshua about, because they said it's necessary to wash your hands in, in our way. If you want to, if you want to come into this house and, and participate in this meal with us, it is necessary that you do. It. Okay. So the idea of what is necessary to be an insider was just like we were talking about circumcision generally was already a problem. People were already confused and understanding the nature of being in a covenant in the first century, so this isn't a new problem. So, so wait, I want to I want to touch on something you just said because let's let's see if we can start a little bit of a debate here. I, I would argue that uh, the that God gives temporal blessing for those who obey and follow His commands. In other words, we have grace and true uh, a true following of the commands and of the covenant comes from a faith in from from a a contrite heart right that it flows from a contrite heart but ultimately god tends to say that if you do this i will bless you if you do this i will bless you so there is a sense of like when when i think of that's not the object i'm not i'm not my goal is not to get that from from god totally agree the greatest commandment is to love god with all your heart and soul strength god is the reward walking with the lord is reward i agree look at Look at all of Hebrews, you know, in Hebrews 11, it says, of whom the world was not worthy. These prophets loved God, but guess what? They were outcast. You, they were the, the last thing of, of what you'd think receiving any kind of earthly blessing. Right. You know, John the Baptist was was beheaded in prison. Okay, so because God was the object of their love, not what God was going to do for them. Right. I, I totally today. agree with you. Totally agree with you. Um Okay, so I I think that your your comment of it's all like every commandment is necessary. Like they're all commandments of God. That's hit the nail right on the head on that one. So I think the question, you know, and, and Rob and I talked about this a little bit when we first listened to the message to John's message. You know, the idea of whether or not a father who has not circumcised their child on the eighth day should now go back and try to do it on a different day. In other words, oh, don't yeah, right. Now that, I would now say that your no. kid's five years old, should you try to get your kid circumcised? And personally, I mean, I understand that we could take it from the perspective of Abraham is commanded to circumcise himself and his child Ishmael, right? Or you know, um, back to like Dina, they say that all of your males need to be circumcised, and so they go and they do that. The children of Israel, they come to they come to the land, and they're about to accept. The covenant. Now, I think that that's impossible. Important. They're about to accept the covenant, and so the males get circumcised. Okay, but I'm not convinced. I, I and I, this is open for debate. I'm not convinced either way. But 
I lean towards the idea that if you did not circumcise your child on the eighth day and now your kids are older, it's now you need to wait and, and see if, you know, if they're go- basically you've missed the boat on that. So now it's up to them if later in life they want to get circumcised. In other words, we show our and d- by the way, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that John has totally missed the boat here. What I'm saying is, is that his understanding and his faithfulness towards God is being shown through the fact that he wants to follow the commands of God. But ultimately, does that mean that he should now put his five-year-old under and have a surgical circumcision done to his five-year-old? I, I don't know how old his kids are, by the way. I'm just as an example. And I think that the answer is no. At this point, it's like believer's baptism at this point. Now you wait for them to see if they want to accept the covenant in that way. Um, and I think that there's multiple reasons for that view. But now back to the notion of circumcision today. And this actually was brought up in the chat room by Christina. She says, have you ever had a discussion on how some see pedo-baptism as a replacement of circumcision? It fits into this discussion for certain denominations. Yeah, the Presbyterians, I have a lot of uh, good Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Are Predominantly, the Presbyterians are pedo-baptists. I disagree with pedo-baptism because I think that the church used baptism, pedo-baptism, if you don't know, is baptism of infants. I think that the church replaces um, circumcision with baptism. I think that the circumcision of a child when at eight days is a sign that the parents are in covenant with God, that they believe in the coming Messiah or that they believe in the Messiah that has come and will come again. But if that, but if that uh, time has passed now, I think that it's basically up to the child to be circumcised and or to be baptized. Baptism, I think, is actually a sign from the believer themselves that they've accepted Christ. And we see this throughout scriptures. Right, we the scriptures say, and they believed and they were baptized, or and he and his household believed and they were baptized. There's not one instance that we see anywhere in scripture of someone baptizing an infant. We just don't see it. It's imp- people try to say it's implied with the household baptism, but once again, the there's always that precursor and they believed. So uh, I think that baptism is different than circumcision. Anything else on that, Rob? Um, yeah, I mean, it's back to the just to hit one more time, the kind of denominational Judaism point from the first century. Like, you know, if you went out to Qumran, they would sell you a story that, look, you need to do it our way and you'll be part of true Israel right. and, and, you, and you'll be saved. And there were people who bought that, who, who left their worldly you know, their life in the world and, and became part of, of that community thinking that that was, you know, was going to make God happy, you know, but that community died out. They were destroyed and, and disappeared, you know, from the world. And now we can read their, some of their texts that survive, but um, so just because someone, you know, circumcises on the eighth day, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm in now, right? They're thinking of it because they, they, they're not grasping what it means to be the covenant people of God. Covenant people of God are glued together by the, by the faith, and that faith is in Messiah Yeshua. There's no, he's the king, he sets the tone, 
right? I, identification with him, participation in his resurrection life. That is, that's, that's the living tree right there, the living tree of the people of God. And back to Hebrews 11, you know, I mean, we're not, yes, sometimes we say, yeah, Israel of old, you know, we can use that and say they, but it's really we, it's really we. When we're reading about ancient Israel, we're, these are our people. We have to say we, we are part of this people. And um, that's different than saying us, them, you know, uh, that somehow, oh, we are a new creation, meaning, yes, we're a new creation, but we are a new thing distinct from, yeah. from God's people of old. Then all of a sudden, now I have to figure out how to talk about covenants. And it's like, oh, new covenant replaces the old covenant. And now my chronology and the, and the kind of the template that I'm imposing on on the timeline starts to distort more and more thinking and you get to what you're saying. Oh, I, I just, you know, baptism replaced circumcision, right? Um, the, the Eucharist replaces Passover and now we do it once a you know, week or whenever we want. Um, so in the chat room, one John two, two, six says I was raised Catholic and everyone was circumcised. I think this goes back to the idea that John said that, you know, the circumcision is not so that we can say, Oh, look, I'm different than everybody else. You know, I mean, and look, in our modern day, if you're in, you know, if you're a guy and you go into your locker room, um, chances are, if you're circumcised, you're going to look like most of the guys in there, whether they're believers or not. So I don't think that it's necessarily to say, oh, look, I'm different than everybody else. That may be some of it. But what I think it is, is, you know, I didn't circumcise my son so that someday they can look down and say, oh, look, I'm di- I'm different than everybody. I circumcised right. my I circumcised my sons because I said I want I want to follow what God has told me to do. I believe that circumcision is a sign of the Messiah. I want my children to wear the mark of the Messiah that I have put on them. In other words, it, I'm the one who has decided this because I follow Christ because I because I'm a disciple. Right, and you know what? God understands that we in our day and age, we've been bombarded with all sorts of discordant messaging about just the commandments of God in general, let alone circumcision or, or the Sabbath, right? We've bombarded with, with so many different messages that your average person today is like, man, you know, I, what's the truth, right? God understands that you're in that predicament. He understands that we are, in, we, we're in a situation which is basically like an exile, right? We're waiting for our King to return. And we, we have all sorts of oppression, uh, oppressive uh, ideas and, and strongholds intellectually, you know, thoughts that are contrary to the, to the word of God. But we don't necessarily have instantaneous discernment as to which, which thoughts are God's thoughts and which are our own. Right. And, and, you know, it's going to cost you your life to follow God. You know, it's cost you everything. If you really value the things of God's kingdom, your life's going to reflect it, and and you're you're going to uh, you know you're going to have to say no to everything else, and then you'll grow in wisdom and discernment and understanding. It's his good, it's his joy to to give us uh, insight and understanding of his word. But he's not just going to. He's not. It's not cheap. He's not just you know. And it's, he's going to try, he'll try us, our allegiances, you know? 
Yeah. Um, okay. I want to uh, no. Finally, I want to notice uh, Love is Bigger, who has given a super chat. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I I probably do know who Love is Bigger is, but I don't know who Love is Bigger is. Um, and so, therefore, I don't know what uh, what kind of uh, sound bites Love is Bigger would like. That's okay. I'll choose some for you, unless you put some in the. Uh, do we have? The, do we have the Hofko sauce? Oh, okay. So you want the, the Hof- old school? Okay, hang on just a sec. Let's see here if I can find. Hoff goes off. Oh, hi, Mary. Okay, um, it's Mary. Well, Hoff. So Hoff is, has asked for the Hoff goes off, and uh, then I, I got one. This is one. for Mary. I don't is, know. Let's see what we got. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Read your Bible as interpreted by experts. You've been blessed. Okay. That's, that's, that's old school. That is old school. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've had to play that before. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, do you remember the first time that we did that? Dude, I thought that was, so, I still think it's so funny. Listening. We got to find, do we have a clip of when, that would be a clip to find. When you first play it. I have that clip somewhere. And you hadn't heard it yet. Yeah. Right? That was hilarious. <laughs> that was one of my favorite. Because we knew we were going to do a song. Yeah. No, what? Oh, wait. And then you recorded one. I did one and you And did I recorded one. one. Yeah. Yeah. And then live on show, like you played we, them both we, and I hadn't heard yours. And I hadn't heard yours. And the thing is, okay, and, that's and the, on the to-do list. That, we gotta I got it. it. I got it clipped. I already got it clipped somewhere. I have it. I have it in best uh, best moments from our shows. I is was that making. Are you two? Is that? I think it probably is somewhere. Um, oh, and uh, yeah, and I remember that we had like two or three people write in and say that kind of music is of Satan. It's of the devil. The beat is the beat is satanic, um, and you're playing satanic music on your show. And okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well. Yeah. There you go. All right, uh, let's move on. Hey, by the way, thanks again, John, for the uh, great comment. And call back anytime. Anyone can call in anytime they want to. 253-465-3205. And uh, yeah, so now we got some... uh, Let's see here. Where are my show notes? Oh, yeah. Okay. This was a comment. So Rob was not with us several weeks ago uh, when Jeff Young came onto the show and sat in for Rob. And um, Jeff Young used a, a term for a hermeneutic, and um, it was socio-rhetorical. Uh, and so uh, Christine, uh, Christina, uh, she writes in, and she says, in last week's show, this she wrote in a couple weeks ago, in last week's show, you mentioned a concern with the type of hermeneutic that was being used to arrive at certain conclusions regarding women and leadership. Okay, now remember, we talked on this uh, hot-button issue of women as elders. And uh, so this was kind of and basically what we were saying is not everyone, but but a majority of the time, a lot of of people will use a a particular hermeneutic in when they try to interpret these passages. Basically, Jeff's point, as I understand his point, was that uh, this hermeneutic is flawed uh, when applied to these passages. Now, I've had Jeff tell me directly there are times when we can see a socio-rhetorical hermeneutic being uh, being used, and and that actually is is necessary. So there are certain times where this kind of hermeneutic actually comes into play, but you can't use it all the time. 
Okay, um, let's keep going with uh, Christina and then we'll, then we'll talk about that. Can you clarify and clearly define this hermeneutic that, con that concerns you? I think Jeff called it socio-rhetorical, but it seems in the discussion it had to do with cultural background of the text. Can you define how it is different from the historical, quote-unquote, part of the historical grammatical hermeneutic? It seems that by using this argument of looking culturally at what, we uh, what were current issues slash concerns, we as messianics might be accused of misinterpreting Paul by using a historical grammatical uh, hermeneutic regarding some of his language regarding the law. It seems as though incorporating the understanding of issues of proselyte conversion rather than solely taking the words at face value, there are time times where we will be accused of using this cultural hermeneutic to drive at the answers. We want, uh, we want versus what what he plainly says. Also, since we're so far removed from the culture 2,000 years ago, don't we need some cultural background to interpret scriptures as uh, such as for uh, 1 Corinthians 11 regarding head coverings? Okay, let's stop for a few seconds. There's a second part to this email. I want to stop for a few seconds. There's a whole lot going on here. Number one, yeah, there. I think that there is some crossover within a uh, socio-rhetorical uh, hermeneutic and a uh, uh, historical grammatical interpretation. How, however, there are differences as well. So basically within a socio-rhetorical hermeneutic, basically what you hear uh, being said is there was something, there was an argument happening within the culture. And what is being said in the Bible is a response to that. Okay? And um, so... The difference is, is that when we look at a grammatical, uh, a historical grammatical uh, hermeneutic, one of the things that we're doing is we're finding hi historical facts that are the her history of what's going on in the time. And we are then taking the, gr the grammar that's going along with it and we're seeing what the person's saying. Within a historical, uh, within a socio-rhetorical hermeneutic, what seems to be happening most of the time when people interpret it this way is they're making a suggestion of what a argument might be. There's really not a whole lot of evidence. And so she brings up N.T. Wright. Let's listen to what she says. She says, one other thought is the hermeneutic more of an issue in pop culture. I don't believe scholars use this hermeneutic you're concerned with, at least as I understand it, without also t t uh, taking into account the grammar as well as Paul's approach in other passages. Scholars such as N.T. Wright may make mention of the cult of Diana. And this would be, okay, so N.T. Wright uh, and other scholars, when they mention the cult of Diana as a, um, as a backdrop to the numerous, and I mean numerous, in various different letters, Paul's... Um, uh, uh, response to or uh, commands concerning women in, in teaching what Paul or what N.T. Wright is using here is a socio-rhetorical rhetorical hermeneutic he is not necessarily using a historical grammatical interpretation that's socio-rhetorical because there's no evidence that we have that Paul is actually speaking to the cult of Diana or things that are going on within the cult of Diana there's there's none of that we have no evidence of that at all it's a it's a it's plausible it's a speculation, though. I mean, it's it, it, but it, you know, sometimes that's the best we can do is speculate. So the question, though, is, is my application of what Paul's saying dependent on the speculative framework? Okay, hey, hey, and, and is it subject to it? Right, and 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 here's the thing: is that she says scholars such as N.T. Wright may make mention of the cult of Diana, but he certainly doesn't hang his hat on it. Actually, he does. 
And here's the reason why. Because N.T. Wright, what he has done is, is he has taken his socio-rhetorical interpretation mentioning the cult of Diana, but then he has taken other roles and totally misappropriated them when it comes to women in ministry. What he does is he takes the role of a witness, he takes the role of a prophet, he takes the role of you know other roles that women certainly can uh, perform in, and he says, see, look, all these other roles. And so then, but even if he says, even if N.T. Wright says, see, women can are in these other roles. Okay, well, you still have to deal with all of the passages that Paul, and there are many of them, where Paul talks about women not being in ministry. And basically what he has to do is he has to say, well, we're not hearing the other side of the conversation. There's something else going on here. And so this is the exact same. And so the point of which, this. Which expands the canon, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, with, with an unknown. With a variable. Yeah. And so the, the point is, is that this is the same hermeneutic. So a socio-rhetorical hermeneutic certainly can be used sometimes. Sometimes we do use socio-rhetorical hermeneutics. We do. But to say to, to now take a socio-rhetorical hermeneutic and try to span it across multiple books and multiple conversations that Paul's saying and say, say this is the backdrop for all of it. This is exactly what those who, uh, tr- those who are in LGBTQ uh, uh, apologetics are trying to do. They're saying, see, look, no, no, no. What you're misunderstanding about homosexuality is that, uh, is that in the ancient world, there was no such thing as a monogamous homosexual relationship that just didn't exist. And so really what Paul's talking about when, you know, in the New Testament, when he talks about homosexuality, really what, what, what Moses is talking about, all of those, those are, those are just what they're talking about. They're talking to specific cultural issues. And so really, um, we just have to read it within that cultural context. So if we read it in that cultural context, guess what? Now, all of a sudden, we come into the 21st century and homosexuality is, is much more accepted. People are in monogamous relationships. And so now, all of those passages don't really apply because culturally it's different. And so now, since God loves and he wants everybody else to love, and since homosexuals can be in monogamous, you know, loving relationships, none of those passages apply. That that's exactly what's happening when you try to say that that women can be elders is that you're taking all of these different passages and you're saying, oh, no, 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 that's just that it's it's just we're only getting one side of the conversation. There's another side of the conversation. We don't know exactly what it is. In fact, there's no evidence of another conversation at all. There's none. But that's what we're going to do. We're just going to we're going to say that it's all just part of another conversation. At some point, you have to say, no, this is this is the command of God, whether you like it or not. And so we need to uphold it. And actually, so one, so all of this brought me to another, uh, a, a post by a gentleman named Francis Spufford, I think his name is. It's called How I Changed My Mind About Same-Sex Marriage. And actually, one of the things that he does is he, he, hi, he, he basically touches on the socio-rhetorical hermeneutic and basically says, you know what? It's not fair to the text. We can't use this hermeneutic for homosexuality. We just can't. It doesn't work that like it's not going to work across the board. We're not doing justice to the text. So at least he's honest with it. At least he's but listen to where he goes. Instead of saying that the text is uh you know that that it's all a backdrop to some social construct that's going on in the first century. Listen to what he says. This is a bit long, but I want you to listen to this because 
This is basically the, um, and I know that we've taken the the conversation from women as elders um, to LGBTQ, but basically what I'm trying to show is that the same hermeneutic is used, and if you take, if you're not going to allow the text to use a socio-rhetorical hermeneutic, then there's really only one place you can go. There's only one other place that you can go to try to get rid of these passages, whether it's LGBTQ or whether it's women in ministry. And I shouldn't say ministry because women can be in ministry, right? I believe that women can be deacons. I believe that women can be, um, they can be, um, they act in the role of prophet. They even can teach. They can teach other women. They can teach their children. um, And they can teach uh, certain things, but they cannot teach with authority. They cannot be elders. That's the point of the text. So listen to what this guy says about LGBTQ hermeneutics. He says, I value the work that's been done to nuance the contextualize and contextualize the Pauline uh, con- uh, condemnations in Romans. I see that there is a specific force to Paul condemning men who lie with men in the context of a slave-owning rape culture where high-status men felt entitled to help themselves to human flesh of every variety. So right now he's looking at the socio-rhetorical aspect of this. I see that this Romanized and Hellenized Jew expanding a Hebrew message of grace and dignity into a Roman, a Greco-Roman world with a grossly transsexual view of sexuality wouldn't have had before this his mind's eye any models at all for relationships between men or between women that were marked by mutuality. So once again, he's holding to this socio-rhetorical hermeneutic for LGBTQ. But I'm not convinced by the next step in which it's argued that the rule against gay sex was therefore never really intended to apply to sex between loving equals. I don't think we're really saying that Paul has been misunderstood for two millennia. I think we're saying that Paul was wrong. We're saying that in the blending of otherworldly and human eternal and temporary, universal and local, that occurs when God directs his burning wind through the small mind of a mortal and tells them to speak for him, Paul's views about homosexuality belong to the human part of what he spoke in God's name. The part of him doing the best he could with the biography he had and the viewpoint he had and the limits he had to set in order the human implications of the great change he had been told to nuance. We're okay. saying we're saying that Paul's view on gay sex belongs with his views on women wearing hats. Okay, let me ask this. Let yeah. me ask you this. <laughs> so I'm going to trust this guy who tells me Paul's wrong. Like, how, how can I trust if I can't trust what Paul's saying? Exactly. Why am I going to trust this guy telling me Paul's wrong? That maybe he's wrong. Like well, exactly, and, and <laughs> exactly. And here's 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 the thing. Here's here's the thing. That's it's, silly. It's, yeah, is, is that guy a professor at like some college? I, I mean, probably? I think he's Anglican. But the, the, here's the point. Here's the point is that this guy, uh, and I think I don't know if it's doctor. I don't know if it's you know whatever. He has been honest with the socio-rhetorical hermeneutic yeah. and said it doesn't work. It doesn't work in in totality. We can't just say, no, no, Paul didn't know what he, you know, we have to say Paul was wrong. In other words, you, it comes down to, uh, well, the, the scriptures have to be wrong. That's the, that's the logical yeah. next Paul, step. Paul's list of sins, Paul's list of, of the works of the flesh that are, that the person who does these things cannot in, inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? You know, that Paul's list is wrong, or at least 
a couple of his items. That's basically what this guy's saying. Like Paul has a list of sins and the guy's like, you know, Paul, you're, you're right on these handful, but this one here doesn't fit with our present worldview. And so it's not really a sin. You were wrong on that one. So basically, and somebody in the chat room said, I honestly don't know what you just read. Basically what he's saying is, look, we have to say that, that Paul was a human agent that God was using to write down his scripture and that all of his commands against homosexual uh, relationship and homosexual sex basically falls in. Yeah. Basically that falls into the, that's the human part element. That's the human element of, of, you know, writing the scriptures. That was Paul's own bigotry. Yeah. That was Paul's own bigotry. Paul's bigotry and insensitivity uh, came through. Yeah. And so, so the, the point is, is that, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying, <clears throat> Please don't hear wow. me say that those who hold to women as elders have gone this far. That's not what I'm saying. No, I understand. <clears throat> what I'm saying is, is that you have to use a socio-rhetorical hermeneutic across multiple books, across multiple conversations, and you basically have to make up the other side of the argument. Oh, Paul was talking about, you know, some specific women in this community that were that were so it only applied <clears throat> in a situation we don't understand. So right. therefore, it has no application outside of that. This guy's saying that doesn't work. Paul's just wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he's right about one thing is that the socio-rhetorical hermeneutic in the sense of LGBTQ and in my opinion, in the sense of trying to say that women can be elders, it doesn't work. You have taken you've taken it. You've taken this hermeneutic and you have just run with it. There's and I am not I have never heard another argument outside of socio-rhetorical um, that would say that that uh, women can be elders. Basically, what people are trying to do is they're trying to wipe these these places that they disagree with away from Paul. You know, this, this ties back <clears throat> with our circumcision comment because I've seen again, you know, uh, I've seen it with the NT right. You know, the idea of like, oh, that was a uh, a sign of marking them off from all the nations of the world. But once Christ came, he did away with all things that separated Jew and Gentile, and circumcision was one of them. So that, in a way, is like, oh, they're trying to create this other side of the conversation, which is unsubstantiated in the actual Torah. Right. There's nothing that God says, you're going to do this in order so you're different from everybody else. It's just you're going to do this because I command it. Right. It's it's that simple. Right. And and. And so the idea of like, oh, well, I'm going to give you a context that then makes it obsolete and then and or not obsolete. Wait a minute. That's interesting, because we were talking about that with Dr. Kaiser last week. Um, I suppose Kaiser might when he says circumcision was had built in obsolescence. The idea is that Christ would come and then it functioning to separate peoples no longer, you know, God was done with that requirement on the historical timeline in history. So it was done away. So I guess uh, he might say that, but, um, but yeah, that this. I, yeah. I, I want to make one more, it, it, something else struck me. I said, when Jeff was on the show, I said, I couldn't think of another example of this, <clears throat> but using the term elder and attaching it to a woman, pastor slash elder and attaching it to a woman there's no concept of that. It would be like using the term marriage and assigning it to homosexual union. 
Like the Bible is specific about what marriage is. It's between a man and a woman. Yeah, man, Genesis. I mean, a, a man and a woman shall become one. But, right? I mean, it's. But I said I said I could not think of another uh, example of this, but I thought of one. Those in the Hebrew roots in the Messianic movement calling themselves rabbi. There's no notion of it within like there's no. There's no precedent. There's no precedence for it. There's yeah. no. There's nowhere in the in the scriptures where somebody's where it says you know like oh this person is is a rabbi if that you know so it, there is other examples. I don't want people to think that I'm you know saying oh you know it's it's on par with homosexual sin because it's not. We don't see that a woman is put to death for being an elder, um, but we do see that within homosexuality. All I'm saying is is that there is a sense where this same form of hermeneutic is used. And ultimately my point in, and Jeff's point was that this hermeneutic does not work when we talk about two things, homosexual, like both of these issues, LGBTQ. And when we talk about, um, when we talk about women as elders, the socio rhetorical hermeneutic doesn't work. Now, now, if you hold to egalitarianism and you think that women should and can be elders within the church, okay, now explain that outside of a socio-rhetorical hermeneutic. I'm, I'm open to listen to it. I'm open to the arguments. But every argument that I've heard has tried to say that, oh, and then I know Paul's talking about a specific instance or, oh, the cult of Diana or, you know, these other things, which seems to be nowhere in the text or even within. I mean, you're now you're saying that there's a specific uh, conversation that Paul is having in multiple different places throughout the scriptures. And what I'm saying is, no, Paul's comments line up with all of scripture from Genesis all the way through. That's my point. Okay. Uh, it took more time than I thought, but that's okay. We got a couple of things to talk about next week. And I, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I got, I'm just stuck on this. The idea of someone who's in an, an authority in, in preaching the word of God. And they're going to say, yeah, this is the word of God, but he's, he's wrong on that. It, it's an undermining of, of authority in such a, a, a way. Yeah. And, and at the same time, it's, it's to say the Bible's wrong on this place. And actually there's things that in our culture today that, that if we say that's wrong, it helps us have the Bible and our, our popular culture too. Right. Like we can have both worlds. All we have to do is say Paul's wrong, right. or we have to say, you just don't understand the social historical or the social rhetorical situation that only applied then. Yeah. It's I, like, I think it's it, like, cause I'm uncomfortable, right. With what the Bible says. I think Christina actually has, she tried to make the point while well, people are going to say that about you and the, and the Torah. In other words, you know, let them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, sorry. <laughs> I, the, the, the difference, the difference here is that we can look at sources and show the, the conversations that are going on. We can show different, you know, from Josephus, from Paul, from different places and show that circumcision is a shorthand for conversion. We can show that conversion, actually people believe that conversion, uh, thought that people, um, change their ethnicity. So there, we have evidence. <clears throat> we have evidence of this conversation that's going on. <clears throat> we do not have evidence. There's no evidence that Paul is speaking against a a cult of Diana or anything like that. There's there's nothing. People are projecting in what they want the text to be a, a response to, and it's just not there. 
And and my point in bringing in this this uh, this very long quote that was confusing to some is simply to say that even those who are the most liberal, even this guy who seems to be liberal of liberals, he admits that the socio-rhetorical hermeneutic does not work uh, in in certain cases like this, like this, like the LGBTQ argument. And my point is, is it doesn't work in the in the egalitarian uh, realm either. What? Well, you, uh, here's one that was in a recent Torah portion in the in the one year cycle: is a man shouldn't dress up as a woman. Right. The idea of a male who adult male who wants to dress up and and appear as a woman. You know, I mean, this is would what would you say? Oh, Moses is wrong. Because right. clearly that's acceptable and there's nothing wrong with it. Nobody's feelings are getting hurt. No one's killing anybody. So, you know, just now you have to do away. Well, they, they, the, the law is done away with. So in other words, you just keep doing away with scripture. That's, that's kind of the point. And at what point do you, why even profess that the Bible has any value? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like other than just some moral general moral, uh, uh, some advice that people gave a long time ago that some of which you might want to listen to, some of which you might not want to listen to. Right. All right, guys, uh, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chagatorresource.com, chagatorresource.com. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.